So we'll turn back to the 23rd chapter of the book of Matthew. Now, so we have been going through the book of Matthew in chapter 23. We get last time, as we were covering this 23rd chapter, we talked about the six different woes that were pronounced upon the Pharisees and the religious establishment of this day. We described them as number one being fame versus faith, number two, destruction versus discipleship, three, money versus majesty, four, religion versus relationship, five, appearance versus actuality, and six, illusion versus reality. So we had covered fame and faith, and we covered last time discipleship and destruction. And so now we look this time at the third woe, which is money versus majesty. This is coming from the 16th verse through the 22nd verse, where he says, Woe to you, you blind guides, which say, Whosoever shall swear by the temple, it is nothing. But whosoever shall swear by the gold of the temple, he is a debtor. Ye fools and blind, for whether is greater the gold or the temple that sanctifieth the gold. And whoever, whosoever shall swear by the altar, it is nothing. But whosoever shall swear by the gift that is upon the altar, he is guilty, or he is obliged to perform it. You fools and blind, for whether it is greater the gift or the altar that sanctifieth the gift. Whoso therefore shall swear by the altar, sweareth by it and by all things thereon. And whosoever shall swear by the temple, swears by it, and by him that dwells therein. And he that shall swear by heaven, swears by the throne of God, and by him that sits thereon. Now, again, as we have kind of talked about this in recap, we talked first about faith and fame, and we described in verses 1 through 12 how the Pharisees and all of these religious leaders, they loved to do things for the point of getting accolades, okay? So we were talking about a faithless action that was done for fame and self-righteousness and self-glorification versus the typical outflowings of faith, which is God glorification, okay? Um, so we looked at how the Pharisees and the religious leaders had been that, that's why they were doing these things. Okay, That's why they were acting the way they were. That's why they were teaching what they were teaching, but then kind of doing things that didn't match up exactly with what they were teaching. Okay? It was things that weren't sought by faith. They were sought for fame. And then we talked about how that carried over into the discipleship versus destruction, where Christ condemns them saying, you know, you are not entering into the kingdom of heaven, but you're also obstructing those who would be entering in. You say, well, how are they doing that? Well, it's because they were teaching the things, okay, teaching the teachings that lead to the kingdom of heaven, all right? But what they were doing is acting and doing in such a way that discipled these people in something that was contrary to the way to heaven, way into the kingdom of heaven. So you had this kind of, you had this dichotomy. You had them teaching one thing and doing another, which they got accused of in the first half, okay? And that was then discipling their followers that really doing opposite of what is taught is acceptable. Well, as we saw by Christ teaching his disciples in multiple occasions, he said, it's not the hearer of the word, okay, 
that is justified, or the hearer of the word that is sent, that is entering into the kingdom of heaven, the hearer only, it is the doer of the word that ultimately comes to the fruition of what is being taught. Okay. Secondly, with that, he also says, as he's describing with his disciples, if you do not humble yourselves as little children, you shall not enter into the kingdom of heaven. Okay. That's an action. It's not just about talk. It's not just about teaching. It's not just about listening. It's not about having the right theological concept. It is about doing. Okay. So when the disciples of these Pharisees and Sadducees and leaders were learning to do opposite of what the word of God was teaching, they are therefore following a path to destruction, not the path to the kingdom of heaven. So you got to contrast there. So we talked about how that's what the, that the discipleship that was going on there. We ultimately can fall in the same thing. We can disciple people by our actions, and that's ultimately what we do. It's not by all of our fancy teachings, it's by our actions, how we live it. If we teach grace, but we're graceless in our actions, guess what people learn? Your teachings are either bogus or grace is not what they think it should be. If we tell people that we believe in a Jesus Christ that taught love your neighbors, but we are not loving towards our neighbors, then what are we teaching people? How are we discipling them? We're discipling them that either Jesus' teachings are, you know, good, you know, stuff to throw around, but not really something you live by. Or else what he meant by love your neighbor was not really what is meant because my actions don't bear fruit to that. Well, then you're just like the Pharisees. That's what the Pharisees did. Love your neighbor, but you can hate your enemy. That's okay. We say so because we're the religious leaders. Jesus said, no, when you disciple people, you disciple them on what I teach you. And to disciple people, like I have commanded you to do. Remember, we went through this. What was Christ telling us? If we love him, we keep his commandments, right? Well, he commanded us to love him and to love our neighbors. So that's one set of commandments. He also commanded us to go forth and make disciples of all nations. That's another commandment. We're commanded to make disciples. Well, what do we make disciples with? With the teachings and the life and the doing of what Jesus Christ did. Okay? So that's what we talked about with discipleship versus destruction. We are commanded to make disciples. We base our discipleship off of Christ's teachings alone. Okay. And we reflect Christ's teachings in our lives. That's how we disciple people. It's not just a seminar. It's not a class. It's not a Facebook post. Okay. It is a lifestyle choice. So here with majesty versus money, we have a, a kind of, again, every one of these little layers, and I know you've probably heard the layers discussion before, but you know layers and like, like an onion, like a birthday cake or whatever, just keeps getting better and better, right? Different layer, different scenario, different thing, all right? Here's the deal about this next layer. And again, it just continues to show the different opinions of the Pharisees and the religious leaders and the different depths of their apostasy with this, okay? So here with the money versus majesty, you see what he's condemning them for. What were the Pharisees doing? What were these religious leaders doing? They were saying, if you swear by the altar, 
All right. The altar in the temple, altar, you know, rewind, altar in the tabernacle. Remember, as we looked through Leviticus and all that, there was three separate altars. There was an incense altar. There was a brazen altar for sacrifice. There was also the holiest of holies altar. There was the, the mercy seat. Okay. So you had these different altars that were there. But what was said here, and, you know, this is what we're getting into with the Pharisees. They said, okay, you swear by the altar. Well, that's hit or miss. You're not necessarily obliged to keep that one. What really matters, what's the most important oath you can make is when you make an oath by the offering on the altar. That's when it really matters. Or when you make an an offer or an oath of the temple. Okay, well that's okay, but you're not as obliged. It's not as stringent. It's not held to as fast as if you make an oath by the gold that's in the temple. Now that's a big one. That one you're obliged to keep. That one's really important. And you say, now why did they change this? Why did they put the other? Why is this even discussed? Okay, well, it, it, it gives another level to how the Pharisees and the leaders had separated the religious practices from their source. Okay? We have been going over this. The difference between religious practice versus faithful actions, okay? Something that you'll hear today that, you know, I kind of inserted into this. Something that you'll hear today a lot of, a phrase that you hear a lot of, is called cultural Christianity, right? You've heard that phrase, okay? Cultural Christianity, all right? Cultural Christianity is basically what we have been, I'm going to say it this way, harping on for two years, okay? The idea that because you live in the South and because you go to church and because you say you have the right Bible or whatever, that somehow you're a Christian. That doesn't make you a Christian. That's a cultural Christianity. You identify as Christian versus identifying as Muslim or Buddhist or atheist or agnostic. Well, that's just a cultural epitaph. That's not a life. A lifestyle of Christianity is following the teachings of Jesus Christ and doing them. That's the difference. And there's most certainly a highly prevalent cultural Christianity, okay? There's plenty of people who say they're Christians. They don't act like it. They're just Christians because it's just the culturally accepted thing to be, okay? Well, this right here is a cultural Judaism, all right? It is a cultural Judaism. In fact, there's a long history, even after this day, of cultural Judaism that is divorced from true faithful obedience to Jehovah, okay? Again, there's a lot of this because, you know, what was one of the main, the main things of Judaism? Well, when the Messiah comes, he's the one you're supposed to follow. I mean, that's what John the Baptist said. Well, then we had a problem. They didn't really want to follow him, but they're still keeping to Judaism. Okay, well, you're keeping to something, but it's not real Judaism, Real Judaism was to be obedient to Jehovah. And when Jehovah sends his son, the Messiah, to save you as his people, then you follow him. Okay? What they had propagated over the last several years here in this situation is a cultural Judaism. Okay? We do the stuff. We do the routines. We do the religious practices. We say we're Jews. Boom. We're Jews. We're practicing Judaism. Okay? Same thing with cultural Christianity. And that's what we have been kind of getting into with this. Are we discipling the way we're supposed to be discipling or are we doing like cultural Jews were doing? We're just cultural Christians. 
We have some Christian stuff we speak. We go to a Christian church. We have a Christian Bible. Our lives, though, do not reflect a Christian life. And that's the case. It's just a cultural thing. We're just Christians for the sake of being Christians because what else are we going to do on a Sunday morning? Okay? So here, when you're looking at money versus majesty, the same thing. They had come down to a cultural level. So now you get away from the whole person that this is all originated around, which is God. Okay? Yahweh. Why was a temple even in existence? Well, because it was God's dwelling place. Why were the altars even there, especially the holiest of holiest, you know, mercy seat altar? Well, that was the place where God came and sat in the tabernacle, in the temple. That's where he dwelt physically for like the first time ever. He's dwelling in this place. The altar was there for him. It was his dwelling place. When you made sacrifices on these altars, it was for him. It was oriented to him. It was about holiness and communion and relationship with him. The whole thing has been from Genesis to Revelations about him. Okay? But what happens? Well, when you start making the religion just a cultural religion, you got to get him out of the way. You got to take him out of it. Why? Well, because then you've got to really be obedient to him. You've got to do what he says. Well, that really messes up with all of our stuff. I mean, that means that when I give my money and I'm supposed to give it to my mother and father as an honor to them, well, that really messes up that kind of stuff because I really don't want to give it to them. I don't like my mama and my daddy. So you know what I'm going to do? I'm just going to give it to the temple. I'm going to make it into... But then that's still... Man, that's still a holy thing to do. That's still a righteous thing to do. I'm still conducting a religious practice. I'm still keeping up my culture of religion. Okay? So that case, you then look at these, these Jewish leaders, these Pharisees, these Levites, these chief priests, these elders. Well, you know, there's another level to this. All of this stuff, kind of part of it was theirs, right? When you gave the sacrifices, they got a portion of it, didn't they? When you gave the tithe offering of your money or whatever, well, they got a little bit of that too. That's how they were sustained. Well, then you can see how over the years that became a really important part of this religious ceremony. That's their stuff. Of course, that's going to hold greater weight because it's theirs. That's why they say, oh, that sacrifice on the altar, man, that's a serious thing to make an oath on. Why? Well, technically it's mine, you know. I'm the one administering that sacrifice. I'm the one involved with that. I get a portion of that. So there's that side of it. A little bit of it's mine. A little bit of it's for me. But the bigger picture is none of it's for God. Okay? None of it's really for God. It's to continue the establishment. It's to continue the ritual. It's to continue the religion. It's to continue the culture. Okay? So in a culture... Where the religious practices are central and God, the source, or at least the end point of the religious practices, is not central, then those religious practices become the center point of everything. So when you take your money and you give it to the temple, that practice is now pivotal. That's all, because that's, that's all you got. There's nothing else to it, there's nothing behind it. There's no one to tie it to. There's no glory to anybody but yourself in that. Well, now that becomes a pretty important thing. Same thing with the religious practice of the sacrifice. The altar, what does the altar matter? 
What is the altar? The altar is nothing to me. What matters is my practicing of the religion. Well, where does that come into play? When I put that sacrifice on the altar. Now the sacrifice is my key link to continuing my self-righteous cultural Judaism. Okay? So now the sacrifice takes the preeminence because that's the thing that I did to show that I am righteous. Same thing with throwing in the money. Okay? What was the Pharisees thing? Well, you know, I come up here and I throw all my money in. Everybody look at me do this. Look at how giving I am. Look at how holy I am. Look at how much I tithe. And Jesus is sitting back going, look, that old woman over there that threw in two mites, she gave more than anybody up here because she did it out of a heart for God. Okay? So that's where the difference comes in. But to that self-righteous Pharisee, what's more important? Well, <laughs> well what I gave, my money. So if you're going to make an oath on something in the temple, let it be the things that we ascribe as worthy, as glory. And those are the things that we did. Why is my money so important when I give it to the temple? Because I gave it. And because it's my symbol that I can hold up and go, look at how much I gave to the temple. So when you swear on something like that, oh, that's much more important than swearing by the altar, swearing by the temple. And I know it's a little bit weird because we're talking about making oaths on these places and these places don't exist anymore. And how are you going to tie this into a, to a nowadays kind of thing? Okay. Here's what Christ says, though. Here's what his view on this whole scenario is and why he's bringing it up for his disciples. Because, I mean, in all honesty, let's, let's get to the reality of it. They're addressing an issue that in 40 years becomes null and void. Okay. In 40 years, this temple and this altar ain't no mo. okay? It's gone. So this is not some kind of, okay, well, when you're going to do a religious practice, make sure you do it in the right theological way. No, this carries on a much greater principle, and Christ enlightens us on that. Christ's view, we notice in 19, I mean, in 2021 and 22, he says, Whoso therefore shall swear by the altar, swears by it and by all things upon it. And he's not necessarily talking about the sacrifice. And whoso shall swear by the temple swears by it and by him that dwells therein. And he that swears by heaven swears by the throne of God and by him that sits on the throne. Okay? All three of these are speaking about God. Okay? The altar and who's on it or what's on it in this case. The temple, who's in it. And the throne of God, who sits on it. Okay? So all three of those are, are redirecting your center point, though. He says, you're focused on the altar itself. You're still focused on the wrong thing. You're focused on the sacrifice on the altar. You're still focused on the wrong thing. What is the point of the altar? God. God is the point of the altar. The altar was the place where man came to make his sin debt be erased for that time. Okay? He came to the presence of God and laid before God an offering that was hopefully accepted in the presence of God. God was on that altar. And in the mercy seat, God was literally on the altar. He was sitting on that bad boy. When the, when the priest went in to make the sacrifices and threw the blood on it, there's God sitting in all his radiant glory, burning in fire and smoke and all this stuff. That was where that altar and God met, okay? 
So when he's saying here that the altar, the temple, the heavens, you know, all these things, he keeps going back and says, who's the main point in all of these places? It's God. You're focused on the money. You're missing the majesty. You're focused on the sacrifice. You're missing the majesty. You're focused on the temple and who built it. And and let's be honest, this temple, it's Herod's temple. There's not even the holiest of holies. I mean, the ark is not even here. Okay, God's presence is not even really here. Okay, so when you look at this, that's gone. The temple is just some gaudy edifice to Herod, really. Okay, so when we're looking at that, he's saying, why you're focused on the wrong thing here. That's why they got so mad at him when he says, look, you can look at this temple. There's not going to be a stone stepped upon the other. He's like, oh, but how can you say that? How can you say that? It took our fathers 40 years to build this thing. How dare you say this temple will be destroyed? This is our father's temple. This is, this is, this is the temple, the temple, the temple. And Jesus is going, you're missing the whole point. The Messiah, God Almighty is standing in front of you and you are missing the whole point. You're worried about some stupid building. You're worried about some stupid altar. And even worse than that, you're not even worried about those. You're worried about the stuff within them. You're worried about the gold and you are worried about the sacrifices. So Christ's view is don't look at the stuff. Look at the one behind the stuff. Okay. Don't focus on what's on the altar. Focus on the one who is above, beyond and in the altar. Okay, don't focus on what's in the temple, in this case, like the money, but rather the person who is in the temple. And that's God. Don't focus on heaven and what it is and where we're going to be and what our mansions are going to look like. Rather, focus on the one that dwells in heaven, which is God. Okay, you're trading off money or stuff for majesty. That's the thing that we have to see within the church. Okay, within the church, we need to be focused on the majesty, not the stuff. So in our present day, when we look at it compared to what we're talking about, a temple that does not exist anymore. Okay, we don't focus on the name of the church. We focus on what the church should be named, which is Jesus Christ. He's the name, the only name that matters in any of it. Okay, and if you look around at all of our churches, we all got a bunch of goofy names. Okay. You got Zion Rest, again, goofy name, doesn't make any sense. Unless you know the history of all the associational garbage, you don't even know what the name is. It Anybody you ask thinks it's Zion's Rest. Yep. Why? Because Zion Rest makes no sense to anybody. Okay? And then you've got things like Maranatha, and you got Little River, Big Bond, Groat, whatever. you got all these things that don't make sense. But people will bleed and die over those names. The only name that matters is Jesus Christ. That we are the church of Jesus Christ. That's it. That's the only thing that matters. When we start putting more emphasis on what the church, the church building is named, we're looking at the stuff we're not looking at Christ. Okay? We don't need to be focused on the building. Who cares about the building? Who cares what the building looks like, what it's inhabited with, what the wall colors are, whether it's brick or wood or primitive or old or new or contemporary or pews or chairs, okay? The stuff doesn't matter. You can have all the correct stuff in it, and if you don't have Christ as the center point within this building, it's meaningless. 
Don't focus on the stuff that is in the church building. Focus on the presence of Christ within the people, changing lives, glorifying the Father. That should be the center of our church. And lastly, don't focus on the traditions of the church. You focus on Christ's commandments. That's all that matters. These Jews with their cultural Judaism had a lot of tradition. That's how we had got to this point where oaths made on gold and sacrifices were the norm and what is accepted. And Christ is going, guys, y'all are so off base. You don't even know what you're doing anymore. You are teaching as doctrine the traditions and commandments of men. If your tradition or commandment or whatever your church operating system is, is not based off of what Christ says, you are not following Christ. Okay? That's just the reality. And if you're going to call yourself a church of Christ, you kind of got to do what Christ said, right? It's what we keep saying about being a Christian. If you're going to say you're a Christian, we're not doing this for a cultural thing. Unfortunately, we have done it a long time for cultural reasons. But that's not what we're here for. We're here for Christ. We're here to glorify the name of Christ. We're here to do things the way Christ gave us to do because it's for his glory and not our own. When it turns into cultural stuff, well, then we're back to ourselves. We created this culture. We created this tradition. We're the ones that did this. We're the ones that get the praise for it. We're the ones who get to toot our horns and stand up about it. We're the ones that are getting the focus in this, and that's not what it's supposed to be about. It's about Christ. Guess who's the only one who should get praise or adoration from the pulpit? Christ. When you start naming off denominations and peoples and all this stuff, you have deviated grossly from what the preaching of the Word of God is supposed to be about. Guess what? There's not a denomination today listed in the Bible. So if you're preaching about them, you're off course. So here he says, money versus majesty. Stuff versus the presence and the view of God alone. You're trading off a bunch of worthless stuff that's going to burn up just like the temple did. Versus beholding the truly majestic one who is eternal. So that's what the gist of this is for us. Because again, I don't think any of us are like making oaths on the pulpit. Okay? But this is really about who we view as the centerpiece of our lives and our, our existence as a church. Okay? Second, he goes into religion versus relationship. I'm trying really hard to move on with this because I know that like, look, we're going to be in this one chapter for like 70 weeks or something. It's going to get very Daniel up in here. So re- religion versus relationship, okay? 23, woe to you scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you pay tithes of mint and cumin and anise and have omitted the way to your matters of the law, judgment, mercy, and faith. These ought you to have done and not to leave the others undone. You blind guides which strain out a gnat and swallow a camel. Okay, so this gets into nitpicky religion versus glorious relationship, okay? And this is something, again, we've been kind of peeling the layers back. These are different. I know we're kind of repeating ourselves on a lot of things, but this is another level of, okay, the difference between religion versus relationship, And we talked about this before. There can be a cultural Christianity where you do a lot of Christian religion stuff. But do you have a relationship with Jesus Christ? There's a difference there. 
There are plenty of people who can do a lot of religious stuff and don't have a relationship with Christ, okay? There are plenty of people who have a relationship with Christ that's not as good as it should be because they think that all they should be doing is religious stuff, okay? So here you have these Jews of the same thing. Lots of these guys, no relationship with the Messiah. In fact, you can see that evidently because they're going to kill him, okay? But they were doing a lot of religious stuff. They chose to do religious stuff. They, in fact, did religious stuff so well just to show how good they really were. Okay? And we talked about this at the beginning. You chose to do these things so people would look at you and go, Oh, Rabbi, Rabbi, look, the Rabbi's coming. Look at his garments. Look at his gown. Look at his fringes. Look at his tassels. Look at all that. This man is a holy roller. Look at how he dresses. Look at how he prays. Look at how he tithes. Look at him. Look at him. Look at him. He's a great guy. Okay? Well, here you have the same issue. You, you are so meticulous in your keeping of the law. Man, when you say tithe 10%, you don't just tithe 10% of the big stuff like the corn and the wheat and the barley and the cows. Dude, you get so into it. You're even tithing your spices. I mean, that is one holy dude. You are so into giving your stuff to God that you're like, no, nothing. I'm not going to hold anything back. Not the salt, not the pepper, not the paprika. It's all going to God. 10% of it all. That's how holy I am. One little problem. Whereas you are so meticulous to show just how righteous you are by tithing the things that the general population is not going to get that deep on. And you think because you get that deep, that just makes you so much more righteous than everybody else. Um, Little problem, though. You're missing the big picture of the entire law. Faith, mercy, and justice. He says, you should have been doing those things. You should have been doing those things to a T. If you're going to be perfect in the law, perfect those things. And still don't leave these undone. You're still obligated to get your 10%. In fact, if you're going to keep the law, as Paul would say, you're either a debtor to all of it or you're, you're, you're failing in all of it. You can't fail to give the cumin and say, yeah, but I do faith, mercy, and justice, and therefore I get away with it. He said, no, unfortunately, the law is the law. If you keep it, you got to keep it. Okay? But you can't ignore the big picture of the law and not do that at all, but then somehow think you justify your actions because you tithe in all this crazy stuff that you think makes you an awesome law keeper. So it doesn't work that way. You don't get to make up for your indiscretions. It's not like, oh, well, if I keep this half of the law, not everybody keeps that. So it's got to make me better than everybody else. And even though I'm not keeping the main parts of it, I am keeping those. So really, I'm square. I have balanced myself out. No. Doesn't work like that, bro. You got to keep it all. You got to do everything. And this is not a time management issue. It wasn't like, oh, well, I just didn't have time to keep that whole faith, mercy, and justice thing because I was too busy counting out my tenth of a cumin. Okay? Which is just really interesting to me, by the way. Tithing cumin. Very interesting. Don't really know how you're going to get to that level. But when you're on that level, you know you're A-list. Okay? When you're tithing your mint and your cumin. So here's what you see, though, with this. To keep those small parts of the law, you're doing those minor things to really kind of compensate for the fact that you really have no faith in the Lord to do what he has commanded you to do. Okay, You're substituting religious practices 
for your faithlessness in disobedience. Okay? And we see that play out in a very fun section of Scripture that we've all read before. Okay? Going all the way back to 1 Samuel, verses 21 through 23, we have the scene where Saul was sent to go kill everybody. All right? He was commanded, this is what the Lord says, go kill and don't just stop, kill everybody, kill every animal, kill everything. Nothing is to come back with you. I want nothing to return with you. That was the clear law that God laid down for Saul. Okay? You're to go, you're to kill, you're to destroy, you're not to bring anything back. That's not ambiguous, is it? Okay? It's pretty cut and dry. Now, what's the scene that we know happens? Well, Saul comes back. And as Saul is coming back, Samuel says, hmm, dust my ears deceive me. I hear the bleeding of lambs. I thought you were told not to bring anything back. What's the deal, dude? Well, Saul says, well, but the people took of the spoil, sheep and oxen, the chief of the things which should have been utterly destroyed, to sacrifice them unto the Lord thy God in Gilgal. Well, we have justification, right? I know we did what the Lord told us not to do, but we did it for a good religious reason. Who can argue? Is sacrifice not good? Are we not supposed to make sacrifices to God? Is sacrificing to God not a pleasing and acceptable thing in His sight? So, my justification is this. If I bring stuff back, even though He told me not to, if I bring it back but I sacrifice it to the Lord, we're square. We have justified our disobedience. And what Samuel said, oh, that's, ex- that's explainable then. Good job, Saul. I know you didn't do what God told you to do, but you know what? You made up for it in the end, man. Way to go. I didn't understand this at first, but now I do. Your misguided disobedience is actually a thing to honor God. Well, in that case, we're good. Don't worry about it. God says, boy." This is what Samuel said to Saul. Does the Lord have as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as he does in obeying the voice of the Lord? And we all know what the answer to that is. No. Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to hearken than the fat of rams for rebellion or disobedience is as the sin of witchcraft and stubbornness is as iniquity and idolatry because thou hast rejected the word of the Lord. He hath also rejected thee from being king. Boom. You're done. No collect $200. No pass and go. No, nothing. You're done. That one thing was it. You say, man, where's that whole mercy thing? This is it. God said, you better be merciful that I didn't just kill you right now. Okay? But here's the reality. I have rejected you as king. Why? Because the king was obligated to be obedient to the word of God. There was no ifs, ands, or buts about it. In fact, we saw that when we were reading Deuteronomy. You had to go through. The king needs to be writing down the law. He needs to be reciting it every day. He needs to keep my commandment because the minute that he deviates from what I have commanded him to do, he's no longer fit to be king. Well, here Saul tries to justify his disobedience by saying, oh, well, I was doing some religious stuff for you. 
I was going to do some religious things with it. I was going to give them as a sacrifice to you. I was going to do some stuff that was going to justify my disobedience because it's a religious thing. He didn't say he was going to go off and like sacrifice these to Baal and dance naked around a fire. Okay. That's not what he said he was going to do with them. He said, I'm going to give these back to the Lord. And what the Lord said is, I want your obedience. I don't care about your sacrifice. Well, that's kind of funny, Lord, because you gave us like four books of the Bible where all you talked about was how you wanted us to make sacrifices. And what God says is all of those making of sacrifices are in obedience to what I said. I want obedience. I've told you over and over again, it's obedience that I'm at desiring with this. I'm not desiring the blood of animals. That's not satiating anything with me. I desire your obedience. The means by which I have enabled you to obey in this is that I tell you to kill a cow, you kill a cow. Okay? That's where this comes into play. Your sacrifices are not some kind of thing to get you out of disobedience. Okay? That's what all of this kind of plays back to. You can go back to religion, and that's what has happened. You just lean back on religion hard enough, and you think if I just lean hard enough on religion, then God will be okay with everything else I do. And what God says, no, I demand obedience. Religion in and of itself is not going to do anything. I demand obedience. We see the famous verses out of Micah, which hints at the same things. Is the Lord pleased with a thousand rams or with 10,000 streams of oils? If I give my firstborn for my transgressions, you know, for my sins and all that. And he says, this is what I've told you, O man. This is what the Lord desires to act justly, to love faithfulness and to walk humbly with your God. Well, two out of those hit on exactly what Jesus said to these Pharisees. You have neglected faith. You have neglected justice and you have neglected mercy. But you're tithing over here. These mint and cumin does that not get us credit. Not everybody does that. I desire obedience. Faith. I desire you to faithfully follow after me. I desire obedience. When I tell you to do justly with the poor and the widows and the needy and the fatherless and all those, I expect you to do it. Why? Because I have commanded you to. I demand obedience. And when I tell you that I want you to be merciful to people, I expect obedience with that. When I command you to love me and love your neighbor with everything that you have, I demand obedience. Here's another good example for us with this. And this is not meant to, I guess, step on any toes, but I guess it could in some places. Here's the reality. People will look at people and go, oh, well, they're just such a good person. You know, they just do all these good things. I mean, that has to count for something. Well, are they obedient to Christ? No, you know, they've got some social anxiety issues about coming forward and making a confession and and being baptized and following Christ and giving his life to Christ like he has been commanded to do. But, you know, he's a really good person, though. I'm sorry. What did Christ say? Christ didn't say, "Okay, that's okay. I understand your anxieties. I understand this. I understand that. As long as you're still being a good person, the other obedience thing doesn't matter anymore. Christ looked at the rich young ruler and said, give it up or give it up. Give up what you're, you, what you're holding on to. Take up your cross and follow me or else. That's, that's the only options you have. And say, oh, well, he can keep on. He's such a good man. Look at all his. He's still a really good guy. And he said, no, you're in disobedience. 
Same thing he looked at every person he came in contact with. This is what God commands. Repent and be baptized. Lay down your life, take up your cross, follow me. That, that's just, that's all through there. So you don't get to get out of doing that and say, yeah, but I'm still just a really good person that does good things for people. I'm really nice. Okay, that's great. You're still disobedient. That's not an option. You have to follow through. You have to do what Christ commanded you to do if you're going to be in obedience with Him. You don't get half credit for doing good stuff. Okay? Religious actions do not equate to faithful following of Jesus Christ. The faithful following of Jesus Christ produces the religious actions. Okay? They make all those religious actions worth something. Otherwise, it's just a cultural thing. And as we all know, culture is very trivial and worthless. Okay? It doesn't have any kind of an effect on us. But when we're doing that out of a heart for Jesus Christ, out of a relationship versus religious practice, it's a whole new meaning. So what we strive for is the relationship. We've got to make sure the relationship is there. We obey Christ. We do what He says. We lay our lives down. We give our lives to Him. We take up His cross. We follow after Him. We do what He commanded us to do. It forms relationship. Okay? And then we continue to follow after Him and to read His Word and to pray and to do. And all these things follows. It establishes relationship. Then the loving of your neighbor is all out of that relationship. The following of God, all out of that relationship. All the other good things and good works that make you a good, good, good person is all out of and stemming from the relationship that you have with Jesus Christ. And the beautiful thing about that is, is then when somebody makes note of it and goes, man, you are a really good person. You say, I know I was saved by a really good person. Okay. The reason I'm doing this is because of what he did for me. The reason I do these good works is because he did them for me. The reason for all of it is Christ and my relationship with him. That's different than, yeah, I know. <laughs> I go to church every Sunday and Sunday afternoon and Wednesday night and I read the Bible and I've got all these verses quoted and, you know, I've just learned from the great man, Jesus, and he's taught me all these things and I just do. No. Relationship. You can have religious practice. There's a lot of people who can have religious practice. You can do a lot of religious things. Relationship is what makes the change. Now, the famous verse of straining at a gnat and swallowing a camel, which is really straining out a gnat and swallowing a camel, okay? And the reason why that is the case, and if you look in your center column reference, it'll usually say one and then say out, okay? Um, So that's what this KJV says. So, you know, straining out is English correct, okay? Straining at makes zero sense, okay? And the reason is this, there was a Jewish practice, okay? The Jewish practice was to strain out your drinks to catch gnats, all right? The reason was because a gnat was a flying insect that you were not allowed to eat. It would make you unclean, okay? So they strained out their drinks. They would strain out their wine, strain out their whatever, you know, they were drinking. They would, the, the really religious practicers of this would pour their drinks through a straining uh, cloth, okay, so that it would strain out the potential to eat gnats, all right, which were unclean animals and therefore would make you unclean. So they're protecting themselves from the accidental eating of an unclean animal while they are wholesale swallowing a extremely large unclean animal, which is a camel, okay? That's why that makes sense, and at does not make sense, okay? This is a practice they were doing from a religious point of view to say, we are straining out the finest parts. We are keeping ourselves so perfectly holy 
that we won't even consume a gnat while you're swallowing a camel, okay? And what he's trying to tell him is, it says, you are so precise in your mint and your cumin, and you're doing all these really meticulous law-based holiness things. You're missing the big camel in the room, okay? You're missing the fact that you are disobedient to God in faith, mercy, and justice. So whereas you're straining out this stuff thinking you are just so awesome and so holy, you are gobbling down disobedience, unrighteousness, and unholiness. So he's going on to tell them, you are missing the point. You're missing the point about this. And again, that ties back to the relationship part of this. It ties back to what matters in all of this. Okay? So the religious practices in and of themselves are, are just religious practices. You can strain gnats all day. You can strain them out of your drink and think that's doing something for you, but it's not. The other thing that I see as a problem with this, okay, that this will tie a little more, I guess, back to what we have been talking about in reflecting on ourselves with the church and with how we live our lives. Remember, we talked about this last week, that you can go on and you can teach about grace all day if you're not any more gracious in your life. Either your doctrine's bad or your life is bad one, okay? And you're discipling people in that way. You're teaching them that that is okay, all right? And I fear that we have raised generations of little Pharisees like this by doing the same thing, okay? In one case, well, I mean, and this is, and this is not something new. This has been a pet peeve for a long time. But we have made little Pharisees in overemphasizing, okay, the teaching and preaching of doctrinal subjects over practical godliness, Okay? And I can't tell you how many times from how many preachers I heard when I was coming up that, well, preaching on practical stuff is good, but you really need to be preaching on doctrine because that's how people are going to know you're sound. Do you see the problem with that? You're indicating that preaching and teaching doctrine equals soundness rather than your life reflecting the doctrine and that's showing that you're sound in it. These Pharisees, great at preaching and teaching the things that Moses taught. What did Christ hit them on? Your life doesn't reflect it. I've heard a lot of preachers get up and talk a lot about grace and be utterly graceless in dealing with other Christians. Guess what? There's something wrong somewhere. Okay? Now, you'll then go say, oh, but listen to how sound they are. Listen to how they explained Romans 8, 28, and they didn't nuance it or anything. Great. I don't see it in your life. I don't see you practically applying that. How can you separate doctrinal teachings and practical godliness? How can you separate Jesus teaching love your neighbor and not applying that? They're not two separate things. How do you think the teachings of grace even mix with our lives? They're supposed to be mixing with our lives to produce practical godliness. All doctrine was for practical godliness. It's not just theology. It's not just something to study in a book. It's not something to argue with. It was all for practicalities. When Paul was teaching these things, he didn't teach them from some abstract theological point of view, saying, well, this is just so when you get out there and you debate with people, this is how it is. When he's teaching Romans 8, he's saying, you know why I believe in this? Because thank God, if not, I was dead under the law. Okay? That's why he said, I praise God that Jesus gives me victory in all of these things. 
That's why Romans 8 was in there. It's not a, I'll say it again. It's not a doctrinal chapter. He was not teaching Romans 8 to argue against Arminianism. You want to know why? Because Arminius wasn't even alive then. Okay? He was teaching it because he was a sinner who felt dead and he was saved by the things that Christ did. And then there was all this other stuff that Christ and God and the Holy Spirit were still doing to make us more than conquerors. That was the point. Practical godliness. To live a life as a conqueror, not as a defeated sinner. To seek Christ, save you. Okay, So that's why that was there. But we have pushed up the teaching and the preaching of the, of the doctrinal stuff as if it is superior. Okay, This is why it's a problem. And I'll say it like this, and people will probably have issues with me for saying it this way. But in my point of view, okay, this is strictly my point of view. I could care less about your nuanced view of Romans 8.28 as long as you get husbands love your wives and be ye holy. I could care less. You want to know why? Because I have been approached by someone and talked to by someone who was just fanatical about a nuanced view of Romans 8.28 while going from, through a divorce with his wife of 20 years. Now, you're going to argue about me and think you're right and think you're morally superior or whatever. You're religiously and righteous in all that you do because you've got the right view of Romans 8, 28. And you're divorcing your wife. You're committing adultery. You're doing whatever. You're abandoning your kids. Now, you tell me how that's not a Pharisee. Oh, we got the, but we, I got the, I got the doctrine down, brother. Does that not count for nothing? No. Guess what's also doctrine? Love your wife. I want to see you do that. I could care less if you had some kind of different view of Romans 8. I could care less as long as you are doing what God commanded you to do. That's where it matters. That's where it's always mattered. That's why here Jesus is going, tithe all that mint and cumin and all that stuff. Tithe all your, your nuanced views of Romans 8 that you want to. But if you're missing faith, justice, and obedience to what Christ has clearly commanded you to do, you are in disobedience. All of your doctrinal perfection is worthless. Absolutely worthless. And when you hold it up like somehow that makes you right, you are nothing better than a wicked Pharisee using your self-righteous idea about a verse to trump the fact that you were completely disobedient to what God commanded you to do. We, what, what has always been clear in Scripture, never nuanced, never different point of view on, never, you know, we talked about it last time, there's differences between the church at, at, at Jerusalem and the church at Corinth. There was differences, there was nuances, there was a lot of different stuff between those two churches. They were not cookie cutter, they did not look the same. You know what though? You know what was the same? You know what was never nuanced? The moral imperatives of God's commandments were never nuanced. He looked at the church at Corinth and said, circumcision's okay for you to be nuanced on, okay? I know we're going to hold to that at the church of Jerusalem, and we're going to be really, really tight on that because that's our culture, that's our thing. We're going to still hold to that. You at church at Corinth, we can be nuanced on that interpretation of God's word, Okay? You know what they weren't? You can't have some dude sleeping with his, his, his father's wife. 
You can't have moral, sinful debauchery. In fact, they wouldn't even let them like eat things offered to idols. They were still a little bit closed on that. The moral imperatives were never nuanced. They were never something that he could look at and go, okay, it's okay if you're sleeping with your daddy's wife. That's your culture. That's okay. No, he said, no, God has a very firm view on this. God has a very firm view about how you're to treat your wife, about how wives you're to treat your husbands, about husbands, how you're to love your kids. He's got a very clear view on that. You can't separate that. You can't take that off to the side and view that as meant in human, but doctrinal perfection as that's, that's where it really matters. Because I can tell you there's a lot of really doctrinally affluent, I will not say sound, but affluent people who could argue it really well and they are completely missing the boat on faith, mercy, and justice. And if that's the case, then you're no better than the Pharisees. You are not following Christ as he commanded us to follow him. So that's where when we're talking about relationship versus religion... You can have all the religious texts. You can have all the religious doctrinal teachings. You can have all the religious theologies. You can have all the religious practices that you want to have. The relationship is what makes the difference. The relationship will blend the two to where when Christ, in all that he has done for me, commands me to do something, then what I do, therefore, goes back to the glory of Christ. Yeah, I can get I can get super nitpicky. I can get way on down there on salt and pepper and everything. When I'm in relationship with him, and there were some that did that. I mean, look at the early church. They were like selling their homes and giving everything to the church. We don't necessarily do that today. They were doing it. You look at them and go, man, those were some committed Christians. Yeah, because they realized where they came from. The things that God had done for them were reflected in their lives. With us, we can do that too. You can get as deep into you into it as you want to. If, however, you're trying to sacrifice relationship with just increased religious practices, I'm just telling you, you're wasting your time. You're wasting your time. It's pointless. What matters is the relationship. And then from the relationship, you get a deeper relationship, a deeper teaching. You work harder in glorifying God in all that you do. That's why when Paul was writing to the church of Corinth, he says, in everything you do, whether you eat, whether you drink, do it all to the glory of God. That's tithing mint and cumin. That's getting on that level that everything you're doing, you're doing for the glory of God. Are you doing it as a religious practice? No, you're doing it because of everything he's done for you, the relationship. So that when I sit down and eat my meal, it's not just a meal. It's like, thank God that you gave me this. In fact, thank God that you gave me This lovely lady who's here when I'm not and is able to cook this awesome meal. That's great, especially when you're on a keto diet. You know, I mean, thank God that you have blessed me with these things. Thank God you gave me these children, even when they wake you up at like three, four, five, six in the morning. Thank God that you have done all these things and you live a life that is reflective of that. I know I've gone over, but like I said, I was trying to get done and I didn't, but we will next time. All right, may God bless to work on this.